You know, one of the harder questions, I think, of the Christian life is if God has given me a new heart, why do I still do so many bad things? I, I don't know about you. I have been walking with the Lord for about a quarter of a century now. I just added it up the other day, and it kind of blew my mind to realize that. And I thought of some of the sins I have committed, even just recently, and, and I think to myself, how could somebody who's been walking with God for 25 years still fall into this stuff? And I know for some of you, it's been 40 or 50 or even 60 years that you've been walking with the Lord. And I can't imagine what it must be like to fall into, you know, the, the sin of anger or any, any number of things. And then look back at it and think, even after all this time with the Lord, why am I still doing this stuff? Why am I still falling back into this stuff? Well, the Bible does give an answer to that, and I'll go ahead and give it to you. And then the text we're going to look at today, the two stories we're going to look at, give us great help in that ongoing fight with sin and help to explain a little bit why righteous people sometimes do out-of-character things. The, the short answer is that God has given us a new heart that longs to obey his commands, but all of the realities of the coming kingdom are are already but also not yet. And that phrase, already not yet, if you keep it in your mind, can explain so much. Uh, for instance, Jesus has completely conquered death, and we need not fear death at all. And that's already true, right? But we still do funerals, and we still die. And so it's, on the other hand, not yet fully consummated because he hasn't returned. He has begun these things, and he will finish them when he returns. In the same way, God's given us new hearts, those of us that follow him, but that is the beginning of a work, and that new heart continues to grow and continues to take over the old us, and it won't be until he comes back that we have a full and completely new heart. Now, that explains some of what's going on, but it doesn't give us all the help we need in the battle, and for that, we have to look to this story, these two stories today in the book of Genesis. I'm trying to get quickly to the birth of Isaac so that we can move on to the next book. And so we're going to do two stories today, a shorter word from each of them. The first story will give us a little bit of an understanding of why otherwise righteous people sometimes do terrible and out-of-character things. And the second story will show us the limits of what our ongoing sin can do to us, how it can hurt us, and then how it cannot hurt us. There are some boundaries there. There are things that God will let it do to you and things that God will not let it do to you. We'll see that come a little clear in a story with Abraham and Sarah. But first, we look at Lot and his daughters at the end of Genesis 19. If you have your Bibles open, go ahead and turn there. I'll warn you before we read it, this is one of the more icky stories in the Bible. This is not the story you want to read outside in public in front of everybody, but it is the Word of God, and we submit ourselves to it, and we learn from it. Here's the story of what Lot and his two daughters do after Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, and they try to figure out what to do in this aftermath, sort of nuclear wasteland that's around them. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. For he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in after us, after the manner of all the earth. Come and let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring for our father. And they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. 
He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is a story that tells us why otherwise righteous people sometimes fall into very despicable and out-of-character things. And the reason, the lesson is that sometimes we walk by sight instead of faith, and that leads us to do terrible things. I'll tell you what I mean by walking by sight first before we go any further. The, the Proverbs say, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, right? You can, you can see what's going on around you. You have perception, limited perception into what's going on around you, limited discernment into what's going on around you. And sometimes if you forget that there is also a full beginning to end word of God, a picture of history from beginning to end that it gives you, eternal realities of God, heaven, and hell, the sort of things that he has taught you by faith in his word, if you forget about those and you lean on your own understanding what you see around you, well, sometimes that can lead you to do terrible and out-of-character things. Uh, the New Testament words this uh, by saying in 2 Corinthians, we walk by faith and not by sight. All right? When the going gets tough, we don't make our decisions based on what's in front of us and our limited view of things. We don't try to get creative solutions to some of these things. No, we just go back to the Word as gentle lambs, as sheep, and just say, God, what, what do we do? And what He has taught us is what we do. Now, that's not to say you don't need discernment. You do, but we get discernment from the Word of God. And it's not to say you don't need insight. You do, but we get it from the Word of God. And when we begin to depend on our insight instead of the truths of the Word, well, that's where things can go wrong. And that is where things went wrong with Lot's two daughters as well. This is the kind of story that is designed to make you ask, why on earth would someone do something like this, right? It's plain to see, and I don't have to argue to you, that what Lot's daughters did to him was despicable and wrong. Uh, in fact, almost every culture on earth, almost every person on earth would read this story and just say, oh, what leads people to do this? That's one way that their actions are condemned. But just in case that doesn't just come through, the grossness doesn't just come through the page to you, the ending of the story confirms that it was a disaster. Some of you know your Bibles well, and you know who the Moabites and the Ammonites were in the Bible. An Israelite reader would definitely know who they were. Because throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you could get three-quarters of the way through your Bible toward the end of the Old Testament. The Moabites and the Ammonites are still there, and they are still harassing the people of Israel. They are the bad guys through and through the rest of the Old Testament. Not the only bad guys, but they are some of the bad guys. And so to an Israelite, this story is a villain origin story. This is how the bad guys got to be here. 
And that's one way that we look back and confirm that, okay, this was a disaster. This should not have happened. One way that God clearly condemns the abuse of the elderly through non-consensual acts like this. So that's plain and clear. I probably didn't have to argue that to you. You probably read it and said, oh, that's gross. What that's designed to do is make you ask, why would someone do this? Why would two girls do this to their father? And the answer is that they're walking by sight and not by faith. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Uh, imagine the picture that they're in. They have just uh, sort of witnessed it happened behind them, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? With fire and sulfur, God just destroys the city that they used to live in, their house, the two men that they were engaged to be married to, everyone they knew in the town, the valley around them, the whole region, everything has been burned with fire and is now covered in sulfur. It's a salt-filled wasteland. Uh, They went and lived in this little city of Zoar for a little bit, but then Lot left it because he was scared, which probably made them feel like it had probably been destroyed as well. They're looking out the mouth of this cave around everything going on, and they're seeing a wasteland. Like if you can imagine from some apocalypse movie that you've seen, you know, nuclear wasteland, that kind of deal, they're looking out upon that. And it looks to them like the world has ended as they see the destruction around them. Like their dad is the last man on planet earth and they're the last women on planet earth. Now a reader of Genesis knows that's not true, right? We read the words, be fruitful and multiply, that God gave to cover the earth, right? All over the earth, people are covering it. Uh, We read the words after the flood that God promised he would not do that to the whole world again like that. So this destruction has to be regional, just local, right? It wouldn't be the whole world. And what's more, these girls being raised close to Abraham, being raised by Lot in an era of oral tradition when the stories are told and passed down, preserved in such detail that we still have them today in an accurate form, they would have been taught all these stories. They would have known that God is not inclined to destroy the whole earth again, that they cannot be the last people on planet earth. But when they look out from the cave, they see a different story. They walk by sight. And you can see them say in verse 30, I'm sorry, in verse 31, our father is old and there is not another man on earth. All right, there's no way that we can find husbands have children, and continue the line of humanity. We are the last people on planet Earth. What's happened is their sight, what they see, has taken over their thinking, and they're making their decisions completely based on what's in front of them, rather than on what they know to be true of God. They're walking by sight and not by faith. That leads to great desperation and a great act of wickedness, and that is so often the case. This is actually a pattern in Lot's life as well that we can see. When, uh, when he chose where to live, he stood up on a mountain. He got to choose the promised land or Sodom. In Sodom, he could see that the land was lush and green and wonderful, and he knew the people were wicked, and he chose to live there based on what he saw, how lush the land was. And last week, we all kind of shivered as we read of Lot standing before a mob of people demanding to meet his guests, right? Give us your guests that we can abuse them and do all sorts of terrible things this mob was demanding. He sees the mob and in an act of desperation, wickedly offers up his two daughters instead 
against their consent. Also walking by sight and not by faith, forgetting all of the promises of God, forgetting how good God is and just acting based on what is in front of them, offering his daughters against their consent. Well, now the tables are turned and Lot's daughters take advantage of him against his consent as they walk by sight and not by faith. So what's gone on is this pattern of walking by sight and not by faith has been passed down from Lot to his daughters, and we see the disastrous consequences of it. So it is then a story that shows us what happens when we make our decisions based on what we see in front of us and not based on what we know to be true of God. We become desperate in the wrong way, and then we tend to do out-of-character things that we then look back and say, why on earth did I do that? I wonder if you've been walking with the Lord a while and you can look back on your worst moments and ask yourself, why on earth did I do that? Right? That is so not me. That is so out of character for me. Why did I do that? I wonder if you're thinking of a particular thing right now. Nine times out of ten, I can bet you the root of it was that you're walking by sight and not by faith. You made a decision based on what you saw, what you wanted, what was real and touchable and seeable in the world rather than based on what you know to be true of God. And therein we have our first point today, that that's, that's why Christians sometimes do really out-of-character things, just like these girls did, just like Lot, who was called righteous, in the, otherwise he's a righteous man, but we get to read about his worst moments. We walk by sight instead of by faith, and that leads to grave wickedness. Before we go on to the other story, Uh, I just want to say this, uh, we would go into more detail about this if we were inside. This story is also a very clear condemnation of the act of rape when it is committed against somebody else. Uh, And there are details in the story that would give great hope to a victim of rape. If that's part of your story, uh, I hope that you'll seek me out so I can show you those details sometime in the comfort of air conditioning. Uh, for now, we will just move on and just know that there are details in that story that can give great hope to you. Let's move on to chapter 20, a story of Sarah and Abraham. <clears throat> this is a story that gives us boundaries for how our sin can hurt us and how it cannot hurt us. We saw what we do often that leads to our persistent sins. Now let's see what the aftermath is and what it can do to us. Chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev, and he lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman with whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he's a prophet, and so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abraham rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. 
Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This kindness you must do to me. At every place which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the sight of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. And the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, that may sound familiar. Sometimes we're reading that. Those of you that were here when we preached on the same story that happened in Egypt are thinking, wait a minute, is this like deja vu or something? What's going on? Why is this story in the Bible twice? Well, it does sound familiar because a few chapters earlier, Abraham and Sarah went to Egypt, and they pulled the same ruse. He was afraid that the people would kill him so they could take his wife from him. And so he asked Sarah to say that she was his sister instead of his wife, That way, as big brother, all the courters and suitors would come to him and ask permission to marry her, and he could just say, no, you can't marry her, and then that would keep both of them safe. All they had to do was lie, and they'd both be safe. Well, it backfires there because the Pharaoh hears about how beautiful Sarah is, and he takes her as his wife, and there's nothing Abraham can do about that. You can't say no to the Pharaoh, but God intervenes, gets Sarah back in Abraham's house, and uh, redeems the situation for them. Now they journey to another land, and it's the same thing all over again. Why would God put that in the story twice? Well, part of the reason is what you read in verse 13. He says to her, uh, this is the kindness you must do to me in every place that we go. They told this lie everywhere they went. It was a pattern sin in their life. Even after it went south in Egypt, they kept on doing it. The mother and father of our faith living a consistent lie, living in persistent sin, lying to people about their relationship for fear of their own safety. So this time it reveals that it's a pattern And it's largely about the pattern of sin in believers' lives. What happens when we continue to do bad things? How much can it threaten us? Can it threaten God's promises to us if we persist in sin? Uh, Can it wreck our lives if we persist in sin? Well, this story gives us some boundaries for that because this time their lie threatens the promise that God had given them. Less than a year before, God had visited them. He had been promising Abraham a son for many years, but this time God gave him a time frame and said, in a year I will return and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So we know that soon Sarah is going to bear the promised child. Now, can you see the problem here? She gets taken into the king's house. Now there is question, wait, whose child is this baby? if she was a wife for the king of the king for a little while. 
that casts doubt on the whole promise of God. Did God really give Abraham a son? Uh, Well, fortunately, God intervenes to make sure that the promise is never called into question. You can see the detail noted many times in the story that Abimelech had not approached her, that God kept him. He miraculously kept Abimelech from being able to touch her. And then at the very end, you can see, I believe it's in verse 16, that Abimelech gives gifts to Sarah and says in front of everybody, this is witness to all these people that you are vindicated. In other words, that you and I did not commit immorality together. So he even makes a public statement that we did not come together. There can be no question brought on who is the father of any children you may bear one day. Now, the promise is not threatened because God intervened. So we have this situation where their lie causes stress and hurt in a lot of people's lives. The servants of the king Abimelech are all in a panic when he tells them about this. The king has this scary dream where God threatens him. Uh, There seems to be some kind of body ailment in all of the people in his house that prevents them from procreating together. I mean, there's all sorts of effects. It's catastrophic for this land, the lie that they tell. So we see it very plainly that our persistent sin can hurt us and can hurt other people. And if it weren't for God's intervention, it could even threaten the very promises that he gives us. But, praise God, he does intervene, and he does prevent our sin from threatening the promises that he has given to us. This is true also of the nagging and remaining sins in your own life, Christians. You may wonder, okay, how much damage can this do in my life? And the short version is that it could wreck your life, but it cannot wreck God's promise to you because God will intervene and make sure that it doesn't. Now, some people ask, uh, many Christians ask often, is it possible that I could lose my salvation? God has promised me eternal life, right? Because I have faith in his son, Jesus. He promised me forgiveness, If I walk away from the faith, can I lose that? And what about people I know who have walked away from the faith? Have they forfeited their salvation? And the answer is yes, but no. If God were not part of the story, yeah, you are more than capable of throwing everything away. If God were not part of my story, if he didn't dwell in my heart, if he didn't guide me every day, I probably would have walked away already by now. And I bet you know that is true of you as well, right? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Yeah, we're capable of it. But if God is part of the story, he'll never let it happen. And praise God, he is part of your story. He is the one that gave you faith in the first place. And he is the one that nurtures your faith and intervenes anytime there might be a threat to the, pro- the threat to the promise of your salvation to make sure that you don't throw it away. He will not let you walk away from the faith and stay walked away until the end of your life. If you are one of his now, he will make sure that you are one of his at the end of your life. So, yeah, it's possible for you to throw things away, but God won't let it happen. I could liken this maybe to a father who is teaching his son how to work a large saw in a sawmill. And he's showing his young son what the saw is capable of. And if you do this wrong, and if you take the blade over your body, it'll kill you. Like, don't, don't do this, don't do that. He gives him all the warnings and tells him, this blade really can kill you. 
And I'm going to stand here and watch and make sure that you do everything right. And then the son begins to operate the saw and saw the large pieces of wood as his father has taught him. And you could ask the same question. Is that saw capable of killing the boy? Yes. But the father is standing right there. And you know as well as I do, the father's not going to let that happen. The second something goes wrong, boom, emergency shut off, the whole thing is done. The father is not going to let the son perish in a way that is technically possible, but not possible because the father intervenes. It's the same way in your life. You could throw away your faith, but God will never let you. He will preserve you and keep you to the very end. That's something we call perseverance of the saints. It's a long-time Baptist teaching. Uh, It essentially means that God will keep you all the way to the end. As the scriptures say, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it all the way to the finish. He will never let you go. Or as Jesus himself says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. He's the good shepherd who will keep you all of the way. So the sin in your life that continues to go on, it can harm your life greatly, and it can harm others in your life greatly. But God will intervene and will not allow it to threaten his great promises of eternal life to you. Let's add both of those up and then apply it a little bit, and then we'll sing one more song together. Uh, So the first story showed us, again, why it is that otherwise righteous people fall into terrible things. Why is it? Because we walk by sight and not by faith. That leads to a desperation that is not dependent on God, but dependent on ourselves, leads us to do terrible things. The second story tells us, again, what can happen because of that ongoing sin. It can wreck our lives, but it cannot wreck our eternity because God will intervene to protect it. So what does this mean for the ongoing sinful habits in your life? I've got them. You've got them. You know what yours are, some of them at least. Uh, Well, let me apply it to a few, and then you can apply it personally to your own habits. Uh, What does this mean for someone who struggles with persistent anger and continues to sin in anger against others that just can't get a handle on their anger. Well, for one thing, it means that one of the reasons we fall to anger and can sin in our anger is because we get our blinders on and we can only see what is right in front of us and right around us, right? When you are fiery angry at your coworker and acting out on it, your heart is not full of the promises of God and all of the great truths of the Bible and all the wisdom and the scripture. No, all you can see is what is right in front of you and that coworker who did something that made you angry. You're walking by sight and not by faith. And the quickest solution is just to back up, look at the eternal truths and act in a way that submits to those eternal truths. So walking by faith instead of by sight can help. And then what about the question of, okay, how much damage can my anger do in my life? Well, it can cause very grave consequences in your life. It can forfeit you your job if you blow up one too many times. It can embitter your children and have effects on your children for the rest of their lives. It can cost you friendships and relationships. If it gets out of hand enough, it could lead to the disillusion of your marriage. I mean, it can wreck your life if you don't get it under control by God's help, but... The day will come when Satan baits the hook and hooks you and tries to pull you out of the pond, like tries to lure you away from your faith and make you forfeit all of the promises of God, and God will make sure in that moment that that does not happen. You can wreck your life through anger, but not your eternity if you have received God's promises. 
Maybe I'll apply it in the same way to a young man who's having trouble getting his sexual appetite under control uh, and is continuing to act out in ways that aren't healthy. Why is, he, why, would, why is he doing that, right? And he's probably wondering, why do I do I hate this. Why do I do this, right? Well, it's because of walking by sight and not by faith, right? All you can see is what's in front of you. All you can feel is your desires and what you want, right? And you lose a perspective of eternity, heaven, hell, God and his goodness, and all of his promises that leads you into sin. That's the root of it. And what can be the effects of it? Well, it could wreck many things of your life. The seeds you sow in your youth, you will bear fruit from them in your marriage if God gives you a spouse one day. It could cause problems in his marriage later on. It could cause problems otherwise in his life that show their effect in his body in other ways. It could mess up his life. But if he is one of God's children, God will make sure that he does not fall away from Christianity because of it. Because God is part of the story. God dwells in the hearts of every Christian. And he intervenes to make sure to keep all of his own, saying, no one will snatch them out of my hand. All this is meant to develop and increase our trust in Jesus, to show us how very good he is. That sin that you committed years ago that could have wrecked everything for you, have you ever wondered why it didn't wreck you? The reason is because God's part of your story, Christian. God kept you, and God continues to keep you because he is so very good. He is worthy of all of your trust and all of your faith. And if you're here today and you don't trust him as your Savior to save you from sin, I hope that this word shows you how very good he is, how good he is to his own, and what a delight and privilege it is to be one of his. So I call you, come and be one of his. Put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.